Welcome to the Cardo Martin podcast, Building Surveying for Professionals. Now, in episode two, we're going to chat with Michael Kemp. First thing first, though, the quick fire round. A few questions that Michael hasn't seen yet, but I'm sure he's going to enjoy. So, Michael, uh, welcome. Thanks for coming along. What I want to know is, you've got about a minute or so to answer these questions. Top five favourite things about building surveying. Go. Oh, uh, top five, top five. Well, number one is getting out and about. Number two, seeing all sorts of interesting buildings and all the interesting people that uh, are in those buildings. And often it's the people who make the job more interesting than it is the buildings. Um, flexibility of the work. You can work at home, you can work in the office, and you're working on site and out and about a lot of the time. And finally, when you're getting towards the end of your career, as I surely am, uh, then the ability to be able to slow down a bit and do some things because people always want experienced individuals is also a big plus. Nice one. Number one thing oh, now would have been useful when you started out? Oh, that's really difficult. I don't know. I can't think. Number one thing that would have been Top of useful your mind. to know. Not gone into it? Or? Uh, more, uh, no, no, I definitely gone into it. I think... Um, uh, I can't answer that one. That's all right. Sorry we'll skip that. on. Number one thing you get asked all the time by clients and customers. How much is my house worth? I'm a building surveyor. <laughs> I don't know about value. <laughs> That's good. And uh, favourite music track, album, radio channel to listen to when you're doing a survey or writing reports. And what's special about it? God, you know, I couldn't listen to music anymore whilst doing work. It would just distract me too much. But once I've finished, if it's been a bad day, it would have to be something like Metallica or Meatloaf. It's been a good day. It could be almost anything. Well, thank you very much for that, Michael. That's a really good job. Um, so I think we'll move into the questions now. So um, thinking about neighbours. So um, my neighbours are renting. Do I need to serve notice on them for works I want to do? Well, if your neighbour is a tenant with an ordinary rental tenancy where the original agreement was less than a year, then the answer is no. Uh, you would need to serve um, notice on the long leaseholder and the freeholder, uh, if indeed there is a long leaseholder. Uh, if a tenant has more than one year, you probably need to serve a notice on them as well, although it is not entirely certain that that is the case, because case law and the Act is not perfectly clear. Although a rental tenant is not entitled to a notice if it's a short tenancy, their interests are still protected in some respects under the Act, e.g. they are still liable for compensation for loss and damage. So I'm a renter and my landlord has agreed to let the neighbours next door do works, but they've gone ahead and they've caused damage to my property. Now, I'm sure this happens all the time, but it's really kind of irked me. What do I do about it? Well, although a rental tenant is not entitled to a notice in most circumstances, their interests are still protected in some respects under the Act and there are specific references to occupiers as opposed to owners. So, um, for example, you would still be entitled to compensation for loss or damage. So, the first thing you should do is to immediately notify the neighbours and your landlord and ask for proposals to remedy the damage or to compensate you. Uh, be sure that it is your property, rather than the landlord's, that is damaged. Uh, these, this area is covered under Section 7 of the Act, um, which covers loss and damage and compensation. Um, as an occupier, you would not normally be entitled to appoint a party wall surveyor, so would need to deal direct 
with a neighbour or your landlord. Is that normally an easy process? It sounds kind of difficult, getting hold of a landlord. They're not particularly responsive generally, are they? So. Well, it can be, but usually if there is damage to the occupier's belongings, because usually as an occupier you don't have much responsibility for the premises overall, um, and even if there's damage to your decorations, there will normally be damage to the structure as well, the plaster or the walls. So your landlord will be interested um, in getting that sorted out because it will be the neighbour's responsibility. So I think normally they would be. And similarly, a neighbour told that there is damage, despite what people might think, usually are keen to resolve that because they would have an eye to problems it might cause them in the future if it was an outstanding dispute and they tried to sell the property. That's an interesting point at the end there. Yeah, so it'll all culminate in a couple of years if they don't deal with it now. Indeed. It's useful. So, Michael, um, what are security for expenses? And uh, as a bit of a layman or even a, a professional, I'm sure there's people out there who'd like to know why they need this. Yeah, so security for expenses uh, is something that the Act provides for at Section 12. And what it means is that if works are being done to a property next door and there is concern that there might be works that are left incomplete or even just a concern that what would happen if something dreadful happened and the owner died and couldn't complete the works, uh, what, what protection would the neighbour need and what about if serious damage occurred? So this is a procedure where you can ask for security, which normally would be a money sum, be placed in an account before work starts and to be released back to the developing owner at the end of the works subject to any deductions that may be considered reasonable and necessary to cover um, damage or completion of works uh, by the neighbour. So it's kind of like one of those if I rent a property and they take and put it into escrow for me it's kind of almost like a mini account. Then it, it is very very much like that yes Yes, it can be a little wider than that in that um, security is not specifically defined. It nearly always used to be just a sum of money, but nowadays there are some quite sophisticated insurance products and other ways of protecting a neighbour. It's even been said to me that it just gives you some kind of hold over the neighbour to or the developing neighbour to um, ensure that they do do what they are supposed to do. And it's even been suggested that you could take control of their Maserati or their fine wine connection. So they knew that if they didn't get things right, that something that was very special to them, more special than even money, might be at risk. So is that kind of stick carrot approach, has that been in place for many years or is this something that's only come about as the people have, have maybe things have got busier and people have maybe got a little bit more... Um, agitated about property and things, and that's why it's happening now? That, that's a very interesting question. I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, the provision has always been there for um, many years in predecessor legislation, certainly for 80 years, and I think probably longer than that. Um, but it's only been used extensively in more recent years, and it's a consequence of the rather invasive and potentially risky trend towards large-scale uh, basement excavation under buildings where um, it is perfectly straightforward to do that kind of work properly and without causing any real problems but it is equally very easy for it to go wrong if someone just doesn't do the right thing and so there's a lot more concern you hear very high profile stories about building collapses they always hit the front page of the evening standard you never hear about the dozens and dozens or hundreds of jobs which broadly speaking go ahead 
without any problems. Um, people, therefore, are more tuned to security now than they might have been in the past. And if we're using those examples, of um, they tend to be around the, the posh areas, don't they? So the Knightsbridge and uh, Regent's Parky type places of London. I'm assuming that there must be a huge amount at stake um, for this security. What, what, um, can, you, can you discuss the largest sum that you've come across for the security for expenses? Well, um, the, the difficulty here is, is that the security really is, is against what might occur, but more importantly and, and more universally held, it's against what might happen if the works are not complete and what might need to be done to make the neighbouring premises safe or reduce any risk. So if someone's dug a blooming enormous hole next door, um, the simplest thing is often simply just to fill it back up again with um, aggregate or uh, whatever, um, or to put some props in. And so that kind of work, it doesn't really matter how valuable the property is, it's only a, there's a limit to how much you can spend on putting in props and filling up holes. So it's not necessarily um, enormous. When you start to look at risks of damage, which is a controversial area, because many people think that... Uh, if you're concerned there's going to be a lot of damage to a neighbouring property, then perhaps there's something wrong with the scheme in the first place. Um, and the idea that you can hold security for speculative damage, people saying, if you do things really, really badly, my entire building will fall down, I'll lose all my possessions, and I'll have to rent somewhere else for three years while it's sorted out, and therefore I want tens of millions. That really is not an argument that should be sustainable and um, would largely be resisted. So in terms of largest sums, the largest sum I've heard of that has been agreed as opposed to requested um, is around about the million pound mark. Uh, but that is an unusual situation. We need to keep this in context. It's much more usual for sums um, in the um, 40, 50,000 pounds to be agreed. Um, you also started by saying that uh, is this not something that really applies to Knightsbridge and uh, Regent's Park and all these expensive fancy areas. Uh, these kind of schemes, surprising how widespread they are, basically to create a basement under a uh, standard terraced house uh, might cost you a couple of hundred thousand pounds. And if it's a two-storey house, that increases your floor space by 50%, which adds a lot to the value of the property. And therefore, these schemes ha actually happen in relative you know, within London in areas of relatively modest property because obviously in London relatively modest property is still very immodestly priced. Uh, those sorts of schemes can are easy to undertake in certain types of subsoil. London is blessed or cursed, depending on your point of view, with soils that are quite easy to dig basements into, but so are some other parts of the country. And I know of uh, a lot of large high-value basement schemes that take place in places such as Oxford, Birmingham and uh, the northwest. So it's not just a London-centric issue. Again, great answer. Thank you very much for that. Right, so um, what I'm interested in, Michael, is what's so special about special foundations? Ah, well, special foundations. Um, um, anything could be special about a foundation, but in the context of the um, Party Wall Etc. Act, there is a definition, and it says a special foundations means foundations in which an assemblage of beams or rods is employed for the purpose of distributing any load. Uh, so what that means in simple language is 
concrete foundations and incorporate steelwork to strengthen them. Uh, the reason that they need to be mentioned in the context of party war work is that where you are installing large-scale reinforced foundations, they can be difficult to remove. And given that there is a right to project foundations onto the neighbour's land, this can be problematic in the future. And so there are special arrangements whereby if you want a special foundation, it can only be done with the consent of your neighbour. So if you want to underpin the wall to create a basement, for example, then um, you may have to do it in mass concrete, which means a wider foundation and therefore less space in your newly dug basement uh, than would be necessary if your neighbour will not let you allow you to construct special foundations. Bit of a, an unknown question spinning off from this, but um, obviously this applies to party walls and that, that's clear how that can work. Is there a way this can be applied to party floors? What, special foundations and party floors or the act and party floors? Or, or whatever you think, really. Well, uh, so special foundations, um, because of their uh, definition would normally only be a foundation under a wall because it refers to works that might go on to the neighbour's land. In other words, past the centre point of a wall, where the wall um, is then on your neighbour's land rather than on your own land. So it doesn't really affect floors, reinforced concrete floors, because they would be entirely within your own property and not extending onto your neighbour's land. But a wider question that your uh, question suggests is does the party wall act apply to floors separating flats for example in buildings um, and the question is yes um, it is not then called a party wall it's called a party structure the separating floor uh, and that is why the party wall act is actually called the party wall etc act because some pedant in the government legislation department pointed out that there were things in the act that weren't about walls and how were we going to cover that so they put in the hope the um civil service compromise of etc excellent thank you very much right so, so my neighbor's been told, telling me that uh, i have to let them build their extension up against my own extensions wall is that true? Uh, possibly. Uh, it depends on specific facts. So if your extension wall is entirely on your land, they have no right to use it, but can build their own wall on their own land right up against it. However, if your extension wall is built astride the boundary and is thus a party wall, then the neighbour can use the wall itself as part of their extension. Lovely. Thank you very much for that. That's great. Michael, what are the enclosure costs? And I guess it can be answered as part of the question for, that you just answered, but um, I'm interested in how you calculate them. Okay. Uh, enclosure costs uh, is a, the expression in common use, but the relevant part of the Act, Section 1111, talks about make use of costs and there is an important differentiation because if you are making a use of a wall originally built by your neighbour at their own cost and this needs to be a party wall then any use made of it uh, means that you may have to pay them money 
to compensate for the fact that they built it and now you're using it. So an example where you might be making use when you're not actually enclosing would be if your neighbours had excavated their back garden to a lower level so that there was more external space beyond the basement floor of their building. Uh, they would have then put a retaining wall in to hold up your land. If at some time in the future you also decide to reduce the level of your garden to make a bigger air, bigger area outside the back of your basement flat or basement floor, uh, then you would be making use of their wall, the wall they built, the party wall, but the wall that they built at their expense. But you wouldn't actually be enclosing it, you'd be doing quite the opposite, you'd be exposing it. So that's why the Act says make use of costs. In terms of how you calculate them, the Act gives some fairly clear advice about that at Section 1111. But basically, you calculate the cost at today's prices of the, the bit of wall or the works that are being made use of and then usually you would be entitled, or required rather, to pay one half of that cost so that you have now eventually shared the cost of constructing the wall. Do you think, the, using the terms that we've, we, I've asked to you in the question, do you think it's quite a complicated process or when it's broken down into its composite parts it's quite straightforward? No, it's pretty straightforward, um, and it arises um, quite often on fairly straightforward works. For example, if um, one owner has built a loft conversion, has raised the party walls to create that loft conversion, then when the neighbour wants to do that, decides they want to do that at some later stage, then they will be enclosing, um, to use the usual inaccurate expression, or making use of, to use the axe wording, um, onto the wall that the neighbour has previously built, and that's fairly straightforward. The, you look at the work that was involved in doing that, so that would have been putting up some scaffolding, uh, taking off the parapet detail, the coping or whatever from the original party wall, raising it up by as many courses as you need to, and it will be very obvious what the neighbour did because the new bricks will look different from the old bricks, um, and installing a new coping on the top of it. And that's usually easy to value, not least because you yourself as a neighbour are probably, but not necessarily, raising the other party walls. So you will have some contemporary costing information. And even if you don't, it's fairly straightforward for a building surveyor or a quantity surveyor to calculate those sorts of costs or even for your builder to provide some costs. That's a great answer. Thank you very much. Well, you've been tuning in to Ricardo Martin's Building Surveying for Professionals podcast. That was episode two. Thank you very much, Michael Kemp, for uh, staying with us through that. Um, you're actually going to stay around for episode three, uh, which will be following straight after. Um, thank you very much. Bye.